Okay, time to have the kids come on up and have a seat over here. Make your way up, find somewhere to sit. We're going to be careful for the equipment so you can stay on this side. We have this white line so you can sit over here on this side. We've got to take care of that expensive equipment. All right, come on up, find somewhere to sit. You can scoot forward up closer to me. You can sit over here. Good, come on up, find a spot. All right. Good to see everyone this morning. So this morning, let's pretend for a bit that I am a king. All right? I'm the king for the day. So if I'm king for today, what would that mean? What are some things that would mean if I was king for a day? I could boss everyone around? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? Yeah, I can tell you to do anything, right? If I'm the king today, that means I have power and I have authority, right? I get to make the rules. That's right. And do you have to follow my rules if I'm the king? Yes, you do. And what if you don't follow my rules? You get severely punished, right? There's big punishment for not following my rules, the king's rules, right? Now, if you think about God for a bit, did we say anything about king in our song and things that we've already heard today? We did, right? We sang already about God as king, right? And in our scripture passage for today, there's another title for God that is similar to king, and that is Lord. We're going to hear in our Bible, in our scripture for today, that he is referred to as the Lord God. And so that's similar to a king, right? And so the Lord God has power and authority, gets to make rules that need to be followed. If those rules aren't followed, there's consequences, there's punishment, right? But God as king, God as Lord, is he way above even Pastor Jeff as king? Yeah, because he created everything, right? God created everything, and therefore the Lord God has power and authority and rules over all things, right? We also see in Scripture that in the end, Jesus is referred to as the King of kings. That means he, all these other kings, he is way above them. He is the King of all kings, and he is the Lord of all other lords, and that's our great God. He is the Lord God. So God is much more a king. He is much higher authority, much more power than any other person, any other person who could be called king or lord, right? And so God created all things, and he has the power and the authority. So this morning, as Pastor Jeremy is preaching, I want you to be counting really carefully for the word Lord, Okay, if you want, you can count how many times he says it or just be listening where in the Bible it's, he's referred to as Lord. So as you listen to Pastor Jeremy's message this morning, think, listen for the word Lord and think about the one who has power and authority and who rules over all things. Sound good? All right, so are you going to do whatever I say for the rest of the day? 
All right. You can go back and have a seat then. Thanks for coming up. Uh, hey, buddy. Uh. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. White Watson. This way, man. Right there. All right, uh, we are in Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, so it should be on, I think it's page 3 of your pew Bibles. That's right. Nope, page 2. I am actually going to start with a little introduction on preaching and what it is, so keep your finger there and then flip over to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, as I said, I I want to time to time explain why we do what we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says something which is pretty famous, well-known in regards to preaching. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is explaining to the Corinthians why he preached like he preached. He was in Corinth for three years. Uh, They, after he left, began to undermine him and malign him and uh, gossip about him and do all sorts of nasty things to their pastor. And Paul is explaining in his preaching, he decided to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That is, he preached the gospel. That was the main content of his message. Now, one of the things that happens as Christians is we know that in the preaching every Sunday, you should preach the gospel, correct? Um, and, but what that means can sometimes, or w- what people think it means, what you might think it means, isn't what it actually means. If you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that Paul doesn't just keep preaching Jesus, 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 and that's like all that he ever says. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, he hits on division in the church, He hits on sexual immorality in the church. He hits on lawsuits among believers in the church. He hits on on marriage, on food, uh, on head coverings, on the Lord's Supper, on the nature of the church. Okay? So when Paul says, I decided to know nothing, Christ and him crucified, I just preached the gospel, we have to learn what that means to the inspired apostle. Preaching the gospel doesn't mean saying nothing other than Jesus died and rose. It means saying Jesus died and rose and apply it to the workplace. Jesus died and rose and apply it to what we eat. Jesus died and rose and apply it to relationships in the church, to sexual uh, morality, immorality, and so on and so forth. So sometimes in the church you say, can't you just preach Jesus? Can't you just preach the gospel? Why are you going to preach all this other stuff? That's what Paul did. The gospel isn't just something that, like, you get to give comfort. It's something that defines how you should live in every area of your life. Okay? We want, we want to apply the gospel from the top of our head to the tips of our toes. We want to live this new life that Christ has wrought us on the cross. We want it to actually change us. We want it to be able to be taken to the fight going on in City Hall. 
And it, it means something. It should mean something. And what we want to see that it means today in Genesis 2 is what it means to be a man. What does it mean to be a man? I am of the opinion, and I don't think you would argue with this, that the greatest need in our world is for fathers. I don't mean here mainly biological fathers. I mean men who will father, be men, be manly in every area of their life. We need fathers at church who will lead, who will do hard things, who will pray, who will discipline. We need fathers in the home who do that. We need fathers in business who will do that. We need fathers at the government who will do that. We need fathers in the police force who will do that. Our world is dying for men who will father. Who will, as Paul says in, at the end of 1 Corinthians, be strong or stand firm, act like men, be strong. But our age hates fathers. <laughs> hates them. In a study on what it means to be a man, I read this this week. It says, many men feel as if they're involved in a night battle in a jungle against an unseen foe. Voices in the darkness shout hostily, men are too aggressive, men are too soft. Men are too insensitive, men are too sensitive. Men are too macho, men are too power mad. Too many like little boys, too wimpy, too violent, too obsessed with sex, too detached to care, too busy, too lazy, too irrational. Exactly what we are supposed to be is not clear. In the headlines this morning, read that professors at the University of Wyoming, it's Wyoming, this is where men should be able to be men, but professors at the University of Wyoming say that the, their mascot, their slogan, cowboy, is offensive because it involves white, male, able-bodied, U.S.-born men. <laughs> and you want to try to be a man in this world, right? All right. So that's my introduction. I, 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 want, I want to learn what it means to be a man. And, and the only place to know that is in God who created man. We need to go to God's word who made us in his image to know what it means to be a man. So this Sunday we're going to focus more on men, masculine, male. Uh, And next Sunday we'll look at women more. All right. Uh, So let me read these verses, pray, and then I want to look at this. The Lord God took the man And put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Creator God and Father, your hands have made us. Please give us understanding that we may learn your commands. Teach us to wait for your word. May your word be our delight. May you teach us to turn to your word in all our circumstances. And may you give us grace that our heart be blameless before your statutes so that we might be bold and never ashamed at any one of your words. In Jesus' holy name, 
Amen. Uh, the book of Genesis, in the first two chapters, if you remember, in Genesis 1-1, it starts at grand-scale universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, it narrows down to the earth, covers the earth until chapter 2, verse 3. And then in 2-4, it narrows even further to a spot on the earth, the Garden of Eden. And now in 2.15, it's focusing even more directly on the man and the woman. So the early chapters of Genesis are like a funnel going right down. This reminds us again, too, that man is the pinnacle of creation. We're the point of it. We have unmeasurable, immeasurable dignity and worth because we alone are creating God's image. We are self-aware. We have a conscience we can think and reason. We have souls that long for God and can know God and submit to him. No, nothing else in all creation has this. Now in, in our text, God uh, created man outside the garden, you can see, and now he takes the man and places him in the garden. A while ago, I don't know how long ago, I should have looked at the copyright date, um, John Eldridge wrote Wild at Heart. Remember that book? I, I, I want to encourage you, that book is actually exactly opposite of what's going on here. He's making the premise in that book that since man was created outside the garden, we're wild at heart. We're made for adventure. We're made for risk and so on. And, and God isn't saying that because you're created outside the garden, that's your primary being. That's who you're supposed to be. No, he, he takes you outside the garden, places you inside the garden so that you can take responsibility, so that you can do something useful on this earth. He's getting at something right in that book, though. He's getting at the fact that we as men know we're, we have some significance here. And in this culture, from when he wrote that book, long before that, th there's been an attack on masculinity. So we aren't wild at heart, we're actually at heart made to, as we'll see in a little bit, rule. Made to take responsibility, to take weight, to protect. That's why it's good for men to marry. And that's why it's such a destructive thing in our world right now, of men delaying marriage so long. They're perpetuating their immaturity, their wildness. So God takes the man from outside the garden, places him in the garden, he gives the man his place, the garden. He gives him a purpose. You're to work and to keep it. He gives him duties. He can eat of any tree but one. He commands the man. So God takes, God places, God purposes, God commands the man. He gives the man a warning, a threatening for disobedience. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God is Lord, as Pastor Jeff said, over the man. The man is to submit to God, but the man is then, as we'll see in a moment, Lord of the earth. It's given great significance. Now, the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what is it? It's firstly a test of obedience. God wants to teach the man that he is to live in submission to God's word. We, as we are creating God's image... Adam was given the ability alone to discriminate between good and evil. And whatever knowledge the tree of good and evil would give Adam, 
God did not yet give it to him. He restricts him. And Adam was to simply be content with this. This is a lesson for us, isn't it? We are to content ourselves with what God has revealed in his word, not go beyond it. One of the reasons that you and I can get into such trouble is we have such vain imaginations. We consistently want more than God has given us. We're not content with what he's revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. In fact, I often know that people who are constantly wanting more don't know what he's given well. There's a lot to know in this book. I don't know why you want to know more. But we should restrain our desire for more. We should discipline our minds to ask only that which God is answering and not more. We'll get this more next week. Last thing, just by way of explanation of these three verses, creation order matters. If you've been here throughout these sermons, you've heard this before. The ordering of creation matters. I want to hit on this a little bit later in the sermon, but that God created man first and woman from man will define how we are to relate in all areas of the world here on forward. And just get that stuck in your head, please. All right, so let's start with God here. We see the Lord God, uh, Moses, the author of these books, in chapter 2, introduces this term Lord. It isn't in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, I, I can't remember how many times it is. It's 20-some times you see the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. The, the word Lord there is Yahweh. <coughs> this is the name that God revealed to Moses when he saved them from uh, Egypt. And so God is, or Moses is inspired by God to introduce God as the one who saves us, the one who is the Lord over his people, the one who has rescued his people and has commanded them. He cares for us. And here we see God's absolute sovereign control over us. He takes the man. He places the man. He commands the man. Men don't like this. (laughs) We don't like being put where somebody else wants us. We don't like being told what to do. And yet here is God moving from creating to ruling, from making to governing. One of the things that has happened in contemporary Christianity is we've made up all these trite phrases. I'm going to make Jesus Lord. I'm going to make Jesus Lord of my heart. We don't make him anything. He makes us what he desires. You can no more make Jesus Lord of your heart Right? then you can make a lion your pet. He's not looking for you to make him Lord of your heart. He's looking for you to bow your knee before him who is Lord of heaven and earth. And our culture hates this, doesn't it? We hate authority. You hate authority? Wives, do you hate the authority of your husband? Do you resent it? Yeah. <laughs> Children... Do you hate the authority of your father and mother? Do you rebel against your mom? Worker, do you grumble and complain about your boss? When you're with the other employees at the break room or what have you, are you grumbling about the 
person in authority over you. The church hates authority. We gossip and malign our leaders. We nod and smile when we're in front of them and then behind their backs we gossip about them. Leaders hate authority in our day. Men are taught that it's godly to not take up the authority that God has given them. We fear more what people will say about us and whether they'll leave our organizations and our churches more than we fear God. And that's simply because we reject God's authority. But God we see here is the supreme authority. And notice too that God is exercising his authority and that that is love. When we read these verses of God taking the man and placing the man and commanding the man, that is the very definition of God's love here. This is love. There shouldn't be in our minds a chasm between authority and love. That, that you exercise authority and love, and because you love, you exercise authority. All that it does if a man won't exercise his authority is create confusion and difficulty. If a man will not exercise his authority, he is unloving because he's constantly passing his authority to somebody else who shouldn't have it. You ever been around somebody like that? You ever work for somebody like that? Who won't make a decision? Who won't take weight upon himself? Who won't deal with problems? Other people have problems. What does that do? Makes life miserable, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a family where a father will not discipline a rebellious child? You know who takes the weight for that? Mom. Throughout Proverbs, a rebellious son brings his mom great shame and grief. What, what's behind that? Often a father who spared the rod. A father who not exercised authority. Love and authority, authority and love are right. They're good. This is God's love for us. When God exercises authority over us, it is love. If you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he was constantly exercising a crazy amount of authority. Constantly. That's why they killed him. So many times we have a picture of Jesus as very soft, soft-spoken, Nice guy. He didn't tell people what to do. He just suggested. Man, I really think this is true. If you and I were around in Jesus' life, we wouldn't have liked him as much as we think we do now. I don't think you'd have liked him. Because he said stuff and did stuff that would have offended you. Because he loved you. So we see then here how man is to relate to God. He is to submit to God. He is to love God in submission, not to rebel against him. So there's God. Let's now move to man. So man, as we've said, is great in comparison with all the other creation. This is the second time we see God speaking to man. The first time was in Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, now here again, to no, no one or nothing else does God speak except to man. This should give us great comfort. Here is God in heaven, the creator God, speaking everything into existence 
out of nothing, coming to us in intimacy and tenderness and speaking to us. It's wonderful. So here, though, we do have to be careful. The word man in verse 15, the word man in verse 16 is not here talking of humanity, talking about a man, Adam. Eve has not yet been created. This is, this is God teaching us what men are and what we're for. Now, this does not mean this is not applicable to a woman. So let's say you're a young woman, and you are wanting to get married someday. What kind of man should you look for if you're a godly woman? You should know this verse inside now, these verses. This is helping you understand what you're looking for. If you're a mom, this is helping you to define what your little boy, what, you've, what you're supposed to help him become. You should know these verses inside and out. So as I've said, though, these verses are very difficult today because of the fall. They're twisted. Because of our culture, which is hostile against masculinity. And because we lack examples. It's difficult because sometimes our fathers were not very masculine, weren't very manly. Because our coaches are abusive or what have you. Our pastors were weak. And so this verse, especially Genesis 2.15, is absolutely foundational as to what it means to be a man. Other than maybe looking at the actual life of Christ, there is no more important verse in the entire Bible what it means to be a man, of what masculinity is. I'm not overstating there. So, again, moms is what your sons are supposed to be. Wives is what you're supposed to encourage your husband to be. Wives have a great opportunity in helping to shape their husband into being a man. Church members, this is what your elders are supposed to be. Citizens, this is what your leaders are supposed to be. All right. So what is a man? Let's, let's get into this. What is a man? Well, he's first Lord of the earth. Lord of the earth. You see back in Genesis 1.28, God said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And here, God takes the man, puts him in the garden to work and to keep it. He is under God, given lordship over the earth. Again, God is not yet here speaking to a woman. She will, as we'll see in coming verses, to be his helpmate in this. She is to support him and encourage him and be doing whatever she can do to help him succeed in this. So the world, I'm going to mean this lovingly right now, and I don't mean all of the abuses of this. The world is and always will be patriarchal. 
okay? Why? Well, first, because God is Father. And written at the foundational level of this world is fathers are made to rule. By fathers, again, here I just mean men. And I do not mean all of the failures of men implied here. I'm not giving license for abuse. That is not manly. It's funny that when Jeff said, what does it mean to be king, all the kids said, you're going to tell me what to do. That's not what this means. That is not what this means. Men aren't given this authority to tell people what to do. They're given this authority because of what Jesus did, which is to die for people. To work hard and spend yourselves on the behalf of people. To protect like a soldier. This is why your little boys are constantly playing soldier, playing war, because they know deep inside of themselves this is what they're made for. So please do not buy into the rubbish of our world that the patriarchy is the problem in our world. Can I be really honest? The problem in our world is the matriarchy right now. Is the crazy, liberal, radical feminist. That's the problem. Behind that is the problem of men who won't lead. It's, it, it's, it's our responsibility, brothers. Okay. You see a church failing... I can almost guarantee that that church is failing because men will not lead and women are now dominating. A marriage is having problems. My experience, everything I read almost always tells me in a marriage problem is a man who will not lead his wife and a woman who has taken to ruling her husband. Creates great conflict. So what does the ord Lord of the earth do? What has God given man to do? Men to do? He's given a responsibility. He's to rule. So men, you are supposed to rule. You're supposed to lead. Who? Well, first is yourself. One of the one of the ways that we fail in this, man, is you, you hear this call, I'm supposed to be a leader, I'm supposed to be Lord of the earth, and then you begin to think, all right, I gotta rule my wife, and I gotta rule at church, and I gotta rule at work, and the first place you have to look is in the mirror. You gotta take the log out of your own eye. You have to discipline yourself. So where do you lack self-control, brothers? Where have you not applied the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life? Where are you not mastering yourself? Is it in your eating? Is it in your spending? Is it in your friendships that you just can't be counted on? Is it in sex? So the first place that you should look to rule is you. Get yourself under control. This is what we're doing for our young men. We're raising them in the fear and discipline of the Lord so they can be godly men who are in control of themselves, who master their emotions, who aren't led by what they feel anymore. Second, we'll see this in a moment or, or next week, but a man is to lead his wife. We could look at 1 Corinthians 11. Man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. 
We could look at 1 Timothy 2. Why does God not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority? Because Adam was created first and then Eve. Sometimes we think that in the church, let's just use the church as an example, that the teaching in the Bible that men alone should be elders is just some kind of detached reality that God made a special rule for the church, and then in the church only men should be pastors and elders. But we don't know why. It just seems like an arbitrary rule that God made and whatever. But that's not true. The reason that that is so is because of this principle written in who we are back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Why? Because of creation order. And that principle then is applied everywhere in our world. It's applied in the home. It's applied in the church. It should be applied in the workplace. It should be applied in a police force, military, and so on and so forth. It goes everywhere. So men are given to rule. This is why Paul exhorts men in the church in 1 Timothy 3 to aspire to be an elder. He calls it a good thing. Because this is part of, by God's creation, what we're made to aspire to. It doesn't mean you'll be there, but you're working towards it. You're made to take weight on yourself, to care for others. So man's to rule, he's to work. Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work. Now, as I talk to men this week, that doesn't mean women are not supposed to work. Please, I got to urge you to be more mature than thinking that. What I say about one does not automatically mean it does not apply to the other. You don't do that. You don't want people to do that to you in conversation, do you? Where they automatically assume because you said one thing, that automatically implies the opposite in the other. Don't do that. That's often a way that people will get off the hook of the plain truth. Please don't do that. Don't do that. So man's made to work. We're to be builders, planters, growers. We're to work hard and faithfully. One of the things that happens to me as an elder is I have people complaining about their bosses frequently. Just work hard. Quit, quit whining, guys. I can, this is how men should talk to each other. If that offends you, it shouldn't. Men should talk like this to each other. We could say it more nicely. Hey, guys at work, you should just really work hard and speak more positively about your boss. That doesn't seem to have the effect on me than when somebody comes and says, hey, knock it off. Right? We're to cultivate. Now, when we talk about cultivating here, this should be the orientation of a man towards everything. He should cultivate his wife. He should love his wife. First Peter 3, he should know his wife. He should be cultivating her, cherishing her. He should do that for his children. Uh, Chris Hansen has a bee farm, and he cultivates these bees. He works them. He trains them. He, he uses them for good purposes. This is what it means to be a man. And then we are to keep. That word keep there uh, means guard, protect. When Adam fell in sin, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, he was removed from the garden, and God put a, a cherubim, some kind of, divine, angelic being with a sword to guard the garden. Why did he have to do that? 
because the guard had failed, abdicated. Adam was put there to protect, to guard. Uh, a few weeks ago, my daughter, Emmy, told me of a time in the uh, cafeteria and all the kids play in there. And I don't remember if somebody was being rude to her or somebody was being rude to another. And another young man in our church told the bully to knock it off. That's what's going on with this word keep. Men are made to be that, to keep people safe. This is why at Pine Grove, we want men to be ushers. Ushers aren't just supposed to hand you a bulletin and help you find a seat. They're supposed to protect. If something were to happen here, we want men in the back who are using their bodies to guard you. This is why men should be on the front lines in the police force and not women. Because men were given this charge. It is a failure of our culture to encourage women to be on the front lines of a battle. It's ugly. Any man who sends her wife or daughter to fight for him has lost masculinity. And we as a culture decided this is a good thing. So we are to rule by working and protecting. And this isn't just to do what you want, men, again. This is for the good of others. This is, you look at Christ. When he came as the perfect man, what did he do? He worked and protected us by taking our, what we were responsible for upon himself and dying for it. This is what we're for. This is what we're for. What's keeping men from this? We could list a ton of things here. What's keeping men from working hard, from taking responsibility, from leading, from not backing down, from protecting? I, I want to I just mention too, again, you, you could probably have more and maybe more important than these, but I, one is fear. We're just afraid of what people think. Our wives can often run circles around us verbally and we're afraid of that. And so we, we yield too often. Um, we're afraid of this culture and what they're going to think if, if we take this kind of manly thing. We, we fear what people think more than we fear God. The second is pornography. It is killing men. The shame and the guilt is just keeping men from being men. Um, I was talking about this with a group of pastors this week. We, we were discussing this. And one of the pastors at a church had, I'm trying to keep this very general, um, in his leadership team, elders, they had a woman. And he said it was because we need the perspective of a woman. And the rest of us were saying, I, I, I don't think that's why you're doing it. Any elder who is worth his salt is getting a ton of input from his wife, and she is having great influence on the elders. You don't need a woman present to have that happen. What I think is going on there is the men won't lead. They want to pass the buck to a woman. They want cover. (laughs) 
And, and I, what I said to him is, I, I said, I, I'm not going to guarantee this, but I bet you a bunch of your elders are looking at pornography. Because I've just seen it so often. When I find a passive man, when I've been passive during, in my younger years, um, I was into pornography. In our world, when men are passive, they're often just riddled with shame because of pornography. And they won't be a man. And so men, please, if you are looking at pornography, that is not a sin you can fight on your own. You will not beat it on your own. I'm not giving you an excuse for it. You need to come and tell one of your elders and pastors or another godly man that you trust will be tough on you, who will love you. So that's a man. God is Lord. He gives man this lordship of the earth to work and to keep for the sake of others. Last thing about men here quick. You remember Christ quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was getting that from here. <laughs> what was Adam given to fulfill his to ask here? What was the one thing Adam was given to fulfill his role, his task as ruler who is to work and to protect? What was he given? Just God's word. That's it. He was just given God's word. And he was to simply trust it. Again, look, God doesn't give any explanation to Adam. I mean, I, this seems to me when I read it, I say, I want to ask some questions. Why can't I eat of that one tree? Wouldn't you ask that? I would ask that. And you know that when you are told yes to everything and no to one thing, what do you want to do immediately? Eat the one thing. And that's because we're fallen. Adam wasn't fallen yet. But Adam was just simply to know God and to take his word and live by it. That's it. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by fruit alone, but by whatever comes out of God's mouth. No, we can relate that firstly to Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Here already we see Christ we are to live by faith in God's word means we are to live by faith in God's son, Jesus Christ. And what is God like in Christ? He takes our sin upon himself and dies in our place naked, hanging on a cross with stakes through his wrists and ankles. That's how much you can trust God's word you can trust whatever comes out of his mouth. You can even trust this teaching in the Bible and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Why? Because it came from God's mouth. Because God, who spent his son, speaks it. You can trust it. You don't even have to ask questions about it. You don't have to ask why. You can just embrace it. Why? Because it is God's son. This word is to be your life, men. This is one of the shames that we as men, this isn't true of all of us, 
true of some of us, our wives are so far ahead of us in knowing God's word because they commit to reading it and studying it so much more than men do. It's really a sad reality. Paul tells women in the Corinthian church to be quiet if they have a question and go home and ask their husbands. Trusting that their husbands have invested the time in knowing God's words so they could give a good answer. And we got to be that kind of men here. We have to commit to knowing God's word. We have to commit to living according to God's word. I, you cannot make the excuse that my wife knows it better than I do. It might be true now, but it doesn't have to be true in 10 years. I mean, if you would put the time, kind of time into God's word that you do into other things, into your motorcycle or into your fishing or into your, I don't know, March Madness bracketeering or whatever else you do, if you put that kind of time and energy into God's word, you'd be so useful to your wives and children and church and world. I read this week that sometimes whereas Christians are really discouraged by the kind of world we're giving to our kids. Right? This is why the coming generation is so crazy about recycling. <laughs> so concerned about what kind of world we're leaving behind for our kids. It's a good concern. But I think we should be more concerned about what kind of men we're leaving behind for this world. What kind of men are we raising in this church? And women. But we're talking about men this week. We'll talk about women next week. I just want to exhort you as men to read the Bible, to go to Bible studies. When we start neighborhood small groups, to invest in them. If you don't know how to do this, would you please ask me? Or ask Pastor Jeff, or ask one of our others, I don't read the Bible, help me. I don't even know where to start. Would you help me? Let's end with this again. God is very generous to us. How many no's in this text? It's not rhetorical. It's not even hard. One. How many no's? How many no's? How many yeses? I, just for fun, I googled how many edible plants there are in the world, species. They don't know, but 2,000. So let's just do some math. How many yeses? 1,999. How many no's? One. Is God generous? Can you trust his word? Is God the kind of God who says no, 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 yes? Or is the God the kind of God who says yes, 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 no. Every plant, every tree, eat of it except one. This is the gospel, isn't it? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us a few things? Isn't that what Romans 8.32 says? Uh-uh. Will not, will not also with him graciously give us all things? What has God given you in Christ? Everything. Can you trust him? Yeah. Let's pray. 
God, would you teach us to trust you? Because you are a God of a million yeses. You teach us to trust you because your God did not spare your only son but gave him up for us all. Would you teach us to trust you because your word is good and wise and eternal, pure and right. And when we live according to it in the fear of you, it goes well. And when we don't, it doesn't. God, I pray that you would use, as I said, to teach us to be men. And that our wives and children and church and city and workplaces would be so beneficial for it. Help us, God. Please give us grace for this. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Brothers, I'm going to speak to the men here directly. Young men, God has made you lords of the earth. And one of the particular ways in Scripture we see that being lived out is in our singing. You see real men in the Bible singing with passion and zeal and raising their hands and doing all that. Godly men throughout the Bible sing. I don't know why in our age we think it's not manly to sing and to sing with some, mm. if you want to learn, look at Bob Brabant, right? Watch Pastor Jeff. We need men who will sing with some zeal. So I encourage you men as a way to live out what I'm talking about to lift up your voices loudly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. I love you. Have a great week in the Lord.